Rabies is the archetypal zoonotic disease, and only by eradication by vaccination in animals will we eliminate infections in people. I'm Navjot Lada, Clinical Reviews Editor for the BMJ, and in two podcasts linked to our latest review, The Prevention and Management of Rabies, we'll be discussing how we can get there. In this podcast, I'm joined by Natasha Crowcroft, Chief of Infectious Diseases at Public Health Ontario, to discuss the human aspect of the disease. And in the second podcast, we'll talk to Sarah Cleveland, Professor of Comparative Epidemiology at the University of Glasgow, about animal control. But first, to the clinical management. So, Natasha, can you tell me uh, a bit about the background of rabies? What is it and what causes it in humans? Rabies is found in really most of the world. And there are a few islands, for example, the United Kingdom, that are are rabies-free. Australia is another area that's rabies-free. But most of the world has got um, rabies. um, But it is predominantly found in the poorest parts of the world, and the people who are most affected by it are people living in rural areas in poor countries and um, most especially children. So that's one of the, the saddest aspects of rabies, that um, it's, the, it's children in the poorest parts of the world who are, who are most at risk of getting rabies. And, and there's a number of reasons for that. Um, you know, children um, who are playing in rural areas, they don't necessarily tell um, adults what they've been up to. They may find wild animals that seem to be uh, seem to be quite tame and um, and that's a, a feature of rabies in animals and then get bitten or scratched and really not say anything about it. Um, and they're also, children are obviously smaller, so if they do get bitten by an animal that's aggressive, they're much more likely to get bad bites and to get bites on the face, which are particularly um, risky for rabies. Right, okay. And, and how much of a problem is rabies? Uh, how common is it... Um... And how many cases do we do? We know how many cases there are, say annually. Uh, so it's a, it's a difficult question to answer. There are estimates of a, around to up to about sixty thousand or more than sixty thousand deaths per year. And since most cases, uh, virtually every case is fatal, um, the number of cases is uh, is the same as the number of deaths. Uh, but the reason that we don't really know the true burden is that. Um, it's the place where these cases occur. Um, the places where people are most at risk of rabies also have um, have really bad information systems, uh, and and so we don't really know what's going on, and we do need better information. Okay. Um, one of the things that was really interesting in the review that I hadn't realised um, in the review, you say that ninety nine percent of rabies cases in humans are caused by well, the source of infection is dogs. Um, I hadn't realised it was so high. Um, and in the review, you also talk about the trends in control and elimination of rabies. So presumably, a lot of that focuses on dog control. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, to really get on top of rabies, we have to figure out how to control rabies in dogs. Uh, overwhelmingly, the majority of rabies cases in, in humans come from dogs. And um, and this is in, achievable, even in quite poor settings. It's been shown that you can achieve this. Some of the barriers are quite interesting. Um, it's trying to motivate or find out how to get a good rabies control program in, in dogs in a setting where, um, you know, where these these issues are very divided up between different areas of responsibility. So it, in order to bridge these different areas of responsibility, so 
you know, animal health and human health and um, different bits of government that are con concerned with different areas. It, it takes a, a different approach, really. You know, we know how to try and address um, immunizations that human that you know people need to protect themselves, but trying to figure out how to get dogs immunized in order to protect people is a different kind of challenge, um, and that's why we you know, people working in on the human side of, of health really need to work in lockstep with people working on the veterinary side of health in order to uh, in order to to control rabies, which um, I think you know, we have a shared interest. Um, and controlling rabies in dogs, I mean, it, it has real, it would have real benefits for humans if we could achieve that. We'd achieve elimination of rabies in humans. Um, but it also would be a benefit to the dogs themselves and to wildlife. Um, and, um, you know, dogs can also infect wildlife. And some of those, some, some wildlife, you know, you get quite rare species that are threatened. Um, by rabies in dogs, paradoxically. So there's lots of different groups who have a shared interest in this area. Right, so it involves a lot of different people sort of who wouldn't normally work together to be able to kind of coordinate and work together. Um, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, okay. And then, um, as you outline in the review, um, it's transmitted by wounds um, or bites. So, it need, you know, through mucous membranes, through contact of the virus on mucous membranes. Um, and you also talk about the different components that are involved in risk. So not, not all bites are the same and not, not all locations of bites are the same. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, of course. So the, um, the, the most important thing is that the, the virus has to get through, through skin or onto mucous membranes so it can get into the body. So a rabies virus on, on healthy skin um, isn't, doesn't cause any risk. So you know, that, from that follows a whole, um, a whole set of things that have to happen for somebody to get rabies from a, an animal. Um, and so the most common way in which someone might get rabies would be a bite that goes through the skin. So a, you know, a superficial scratch is much, much lower risk. Um, and a lick on intact skin is, is, you know, is really zero risk. So the nature of that, that exposure is absolutely critical. So and there's a whole load of other predisposing factors that would make would determine whether or not that bite was actually a risk at all, which which are linked to the species of the animal, um, dogs being the, the highest risk species, and whether or not there's rabies in the area where you are at the time. So local knowledge is very important. People working um, and living in an area will know whether there's rabies in that area uh, and whether or not that particular exposure is a risk. Um, the other thing is um, where the bite occurs. So I mentioned uh, previously that children are at particular risk because they, they are much more likely to get bitten on the face and any bites on the head are really high risk. And part of the reason for that is because um, the virus has to travel from the place where you're bitten to into the central nervous system. And the closer the bite is to the brain, the less far it has to travel. And so the less time you have to get treatment into where it needs to be to be effective, um, and the less time your body has to make an immune response to cut the virus off before it gets where it's headed. Um, so, you know, if you're bitten on your, your toe, you're at much lower risk than if you're bitten on your face just because you, you just don't have as much time to, um, for, for uh, post-exposure prophylaxis to take effect. Okay. Uh, well, that brings us nicely on to um, prevention. Um, so, I mean, rabies is this incredibly frightening disease when it occurs, but 
there there are preventive measure, measures so both before you might be exposed, um, vaccination, and then post-exposure prophylaxis. So we'll talk first about um, the pre-exposure steps that can be taken. Um, Who is it that needs to be vaccinated against rabies? Uh, So most of the groups that need to be vaccinated are occupational groups that are vaccinated pre-exposure. So they're people who are working with animals that might have rabies or species like bats that might have rabies, people who handle bats, um, veterinary officers who work in quarantine kennels, those kinds of people, uh, people who work in laboratories who may actually work with the virus itself have to be vaccinated. So there's a a lot of occupational groups, um, people who are traveling to remote areas where they may not have access to post-exposure prophylaxis, uh, especially for prolonged periods, they are also recommended to be vaccinated. Um, although it's not always funded by um, by public health systems, but it's also recommended for certain groups of travellers, not all. So people are really at high risk. Um, there aren't any universal immunisation programmes for people who are living in areas where there's lots of rabies. We don't have that approach um, because it's still a rare enough disease not to justify it by vaccinating everybody. So it's really quite a narrow group of people who are currently recommended for pre-exposure vaccination. Um, And uh, they're defined by their occupational health risk generally or by travel health risk. Okay. Um, And then the other big preventive kind of strategy is for um, post-exposure prophylaxis. And you outline very clearly the different components for that in the review. Um, Can you elaborate on that now? Absolutely. Um, So the very first step um, following a potential rabies exposure is is really basic cleaning of the wound, and that has a big effect on reducing risk. So flushing the wound um, as much as possible, which will flush out any virus that might be there. And it's also good for lots of other reasons, for basic wound care. Um, So even with just soap and water, if that's all you have, but just flush that wound out. as much as possible, and that can be done, you know, as soon as possible by anybody who's who's near the person who's been injured or the injured person themselves. So um, that's the first step. Then um, the next thing that needs to happen as soon as possible is for the vaccination um, to be given, the first dose of post-exposure vaccination, and at the same time, um, rabies immunoglobulin for a high-risk wound is. Um, is recommended to be injected into the wound site itself as much as possible actually into the wound site because the idea is that the rabies immunoglobulin will mop up any virus that's actually in the wound. So these three these three initial steps need to happen as soon as possible. Um, so having said all of that, they have to happen as soon as possible, but as long as someone is symptom-free, there isn't really a limit on how um, there isn't a time at which you don't go on to give people post-exposure prophylaxis. So if somebody came to see me and they'd been bitten by a dog and had a you know bite that went through the skin, um, and it was you know two years ago and they were well, but they didn't have any post-exposure vaccination, I would say you need to get vaccinated. And that's because the incubation period is really quite variable. Usually it's on the shorter side of things, but there have been documented cases of it, ha- of it being very prolonged. And so 
um, we don't have a kind of cut-off for saying you, you don't need post-exposure vaccination. We still give it. Okay. Um, and I suppose sometimes you may, you may, the animal may be a, a pet or you may, you may have isolated the animal and be able to monitor the animal as well. So you might get an idea of, of rabies risk from that as well. Oh, of course, yes. That's... Um, if you know the animal's healthy and they're um, and they're under observation, and especially if they're vaccinated, the animal themselves is vaccinated, so it was a, a family pet. And you know, but dogs are um, quite territorial, so you know it's quite common for people to get bitten by dogs um, when they're defending the home or that in that kind of situation where it's it's part of a dog's normal behaviour. They're not they're not unnaturally aggressive, and um, they've bitten somebody, but they're healthy and vaccinated, and you can observe them. For ten days, then um, then there's you can actually, if you're confident that the dog is healthy and vaccinated, you can delay post-exposure prophylaxis. But you, but what most people would do is start the post-exposure um, vaccine series and then discontinue it when the ten-day mark is reached and the animal is still healthy. And what's the significance of ten days? Is that um, would you expect to see symptoms in animals by after ten days? Um, the significance is that they. Even if they're incubation, even if they are incubating rabies, they're not really infectious until they start to show signs. And so, if they've been healthy in that ten-day period, right. what you're saying is, at the point at which they bit the person, they are very unlikely to um, to have virus in their saliva at that point in time. Okay. Um, some countries, in fact, the UK recommends 15 days. Um, the World Health Organization recommends that when the animal's healthy and vaccinated, 10 days is fine. And in North America, uh, we, we go with 10 days. So there's a little bit of variability from one country to another. And uh, I emphasize that because just to say that anybody who's working in this area needs to know their local guidance because that's what they should be following. Okay. Okay. So um, there will unfortunately be people who will either not have access to post-exposure prophylaxis or not know um, and who may go on to develop the clinical features of rabies. Um, do we know what proportion of people who um, I guess are exposed will go on? I suppose there are so many variables but do we know how many people who are exposed will go on to develop um, rabies? I'm not aware that there's very good information on, on that. Um, I mean, we know that you can get bitten by a rabid dog and not develop rabies, but um, what proportion do, I'm, I'm not aware of that. Okay. Um, okay, well, let's talk about the um, clinical features then of rabies. What are, the, what are the symptoms that someone with rabies might experience? So classically, um, one of the first symptoms that can be... Um, experienced by somebody who's developing rabies is um, is at the actual bite site. They can get pain and or itching or uh, paresthesia, some strange symptoms at the bite site. Um, that may or may not occur. Um, following that, uh, one of the symptoms that's often found in people early on, um, they can actually be referred to psychiatrists because of psychological presentations, because anxiety um, can be a very powerful feature. Um, 
And then some of the features that people um, may be more aware of, hydrophobia and hypersalivation, so um, fear of water and, um, and what is colloquially you know, foaming at the mouth, which is what we see in dogs. Um, that happens in humans as well. This, um, these strange symptoms that are very typical of rabies are not really seen in much else, but are symptomatic of the encephalitis that's going on in the brain. Um, and then following that, the person will generally lapse into a coma. Um, but the, in terms of supportive treatment, this anxiety is really very unpleasant for the for the patient, and so this is why one of the most important things about treating a patient with with rabies is is really about making them comfortable and keeping them in a in an environment where they're not going to be startled, where you know the lights are low, it's quiet, um, and giving them um, anxiolytics to try and keep them calm. Um, it's you know it's I guess it's could be framed as a sort of palliative care for for rabies to try and make the person as comfortable as possible. A blast of air on their skin can can elicit a, a major startle reaction. They're, they're really in a state of uh, of extreme anxiety. Okay. Um, and are are there any treatments at all available? Currently, um, there there are no documented proved treatments that are effective. There was a lot of excitement about 10 years ago when a young woman um, survived a, a bat form of rabies in the USA, um, about the, and she was given a, an induced coma and a, a set of treatment that, that is now called the Milwaukee Protocol. And there was an idea that perhaps this had helped her survive, and there's a handful of people who've ever survived rabies, and she is one of them. Um, this protocol has been tried several times now, um, uh, and has not proved to be successful in subsequent patients. So we're currently still without effective treatment for rabies. People are looking at developing new antivirals and um, looking at trying to see if there are you know, different approaches that might work. But it's very hard to, to study this kind of disease. It's um, you know, predominantly occurring in, in very poor countries and clinical trials are, would be very difficult to carry out. Um, and, um, and the other side of this is, we, you know, we can prevent this disease. We can eliminate this disease. So I'm a little bit torn about this because while I completely support, I mean, it would be wonderful to have effective treatments for rabies, I, um, I feel like if we were going to put our dollars somewhere or our pounds or whatever currency you choose to spend, into rabies, you know, we know we can eliminate rabies. We've done it in many parts of the world. So why not focus on eliminating rabies and then we don't have the issue? Uh, but I'm a public health physician, so I'm bound to say that. <laughs> That's bound to be my, my view, but it just, it just seems like, you know, it, it, the kinds of treatments we're looking at are things that probably only rich people will be able to afford. And right now, the people who are dying from rabies are predominantly poor people and, and often children. So why don't we just get rid of rabies in dogs and then we'll have got rid of 99% of the problem. Make a strong case there. You've been listening to Natasha Crowcroft discuss rabies in humans. To find out more about the disease in animals, listen to the accompanying podcast with Sarah Cleveland. 
To find it, visit the article The Prevention and Management of Rabies, now available on thebmj.com.